2: We often tease our producer, Josh Nilea, about his crazy ideas. So I have to be honest. This was my crazy idea, which I then handed to Josh Naleya. I started thinking about pods. In particular, there was uh, some publicity about a new kind of whiskey pod, where you you get, like, this edible pod that has whiskey inside it, which seems to obviate the point of whiskey. Whiskey, you know, you sip whiskey. you don't. It doesn't belong in a pod, but there's Tide Pods and iPods and Air Pods and... Uh, I just sort of wonder what kind of pod culture is springing up here what does it mean where does it come from well that's the show we're going to do right now and of course at the end we're going to remind you about body snatchers who are pod people So let me try to explain. Sometimes we do a show when we feel as though we've detected an aesthetic or a series of visual spoken technological tropes that somehow or other meld into a hole, but hasn't really been all that well documented. That, this is one of those shows. <laughs> this is one of those shows and and it did come to me because I was looking at um some advertising for whiskey pods, so this would be um some kind of pod like thing that you could hold in your hand that was i guess dissolvable in your mouth, and then behind that behind that membrane was whiskey um, they also i l- looked into the company they also make similar things. You know how when you see like a marathon runner go by and people hand that person a cup of water? Well, that's a little bit awkward. So the whole idea is you just hand them a pod that would contain hydration material. They'd put it in their mouths and keep running, I guess. Um, And (laughs) sounds like a joking hazard. Uh, And of course, there's Tide Pods, which people want to use the same way, even though they really shouldn't. It's detergent. It's toxic. They don't want to do it that way. And then we thought a little bit more about Keurig Pods and iPods and uh, the pod brand of, of kind of moving storage units. And we realized there's a pod thing happening. Um, and we wondered if anybody else had noticed. And so whenever I have an idea like this, I turn it over to producer Josh Nilea. He's the guy who can go after these things. And, and he found a series of people who do want to talk about this, including... Well, we'll talk right at the end of the show also about InVision of the Body Snatchers, which for a while promulgated the term pod people as kind of a, a dangerous form of the other, capital O. Um But that's, you know, maybe a couple of decades back. There's something else happening right now. And then Josh found the absolute perfect guest. This is the person we were looking for, and there may be only one such person uh, in Western civilization. It's Blanka Domogalska, lecturer at Otis College of Art and Design, teaching courses on product design with expertise in art history, media and cultural theory, philosophy, and aesthetic liminality. Somebody who happens to have been thinking about exactly this question. And before uh, I get her going on this uh, question, let's just hear a little clip that kind of sets up some of the premises I just described. Sleep
3: is fitness. Introducing the Eight Sleep Pod, the only bed featuring dynamic temperature regulation.
4: What if you're struggling to keep your eyes open during the day?
1: Some enlightened companies are installing these nap pods so their staff can have a snooze during office hours. when
3: it was clear living 30 feet away had to change to living 3,000 miles away, they made the right move and called Pods. Pods, the right move for
4: your move. We believe in a wireless future. This belief drove the design of our new wireless AirPods.
0: Introducing Tide
2: Pods, the biggest innovation on the Tide brand in nearly three decades. All right. So, Blanca Domagowska, you listen to that, um, and obviously there is something happening here. And you associated it with a term called liminality. Liminality refers to the word for threshold. So, we're on the threshold between something and something else. Uh, what would those two somethings be?
1: Well, it's it's a sort of a deeper ontological question, really. Um, we have been using... Our technology for a while now ever since the um, Industrial Revolution we've been sort of indoctrinizing ourselves into a different type of ontology which is the, the machine ontology and it seems perhaps that maybe we are moving from the more sort of anthropocentric ontology into something that is closer to technological Ontology, And so I wonder, you know, these are sort of my my writings are always sort of wonderings about certain subjects. I wonder if the pod may be actually the nexus point of that transformation. Uh, Because like you said, we do have a certain uh, almost compulsion to get into those pods these days, right? Mm -hmm. Like we want to sleep in them. We want to travel in them. uh, We want to read books in them or have other mediated experiences. And so it is perhaps an excess of of some sort of transformation that we are um, uh, sort of psychologically undergoing and moving into the next stage, whatever that might be.
2: Right. So in a way, one way of thinking about this would be that the pod would be like the Tibetan bardo or, or like a cocoon in which a caterpillar awaits transformation uh, into a butterfly, that there's sort of if we are at some change point where we we, we become less purely biological and more quote-unquote transhuman, more connected to wearable technology, that the pod is the kind of that little womb-like gestation point.
1: Absolutely. And that sort of prediction and instinct that we have towards that has been very well documented in all sorts of literary and film genres, you know, cyberpunk being one of them, cyberpunk and um, horror, just teams with pods and transformations and uh, moving from one ontology into another. Also, you know, in a lot of ways, we have been transforming for a while, and you could argue that at this point we are sort of these cyborgian uh, creatures that live very closely uh, with the technology and have a very intimate relationship with technology that sort of was forged in that in that sort of pod that um, we are psychologically
2: cocooning ourselves into. So McLuhan talks about the fact that when we make transitions, when we make transitions in the kind of information technology he was specifically interested Mm -hmm. in, it's occasioned, it it occasions anxiety. And, and I I sort of feel that in what you're saying and in my experience. Like some of these things that we're talking about make me nervous, nervous about what they mean, nervous about what they portend. But I've also experienced another kind of anxiety recently that I think is right where you're Talking and and I'll describe it to you. So I a couple of years ago I got um, the kind of earbuds that are AirPods. It's a different brand, but the whole idea is it's a Bluetooth earbud. So I put it in my ears and there's no wire connecting it to anything. And and within the last three or four days they've been they've had a problem. They're malfunctioning. They might be dying out. And I've had to go back to the old kind of earbud, which is you know those iPod earbuds with the they're white and they have that big white wire going down to the phone. And I'm finding it's really troubling to me. It's like I don't want to be connected in that way. That wire is in my way. It's bothering me in some way. And and so maybe I've already made a slight ontological transition to a person who gets things piped into his ears in a much more wearable, less obviously attached way.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's a very troubling subject, but the way that things are shaping these days, uh, we are actually on the trajectory to ingest our um, technology in different ways. And by ingest, I mean literally ingest or accept it intravenously even, right. Mm-hmm. And that that sort of ontological shift we may not be ready for just yet. And I think another Canadian, because you have mentioned McLuhan, mm-hmm. David Cron- Cronenberg actually touched on that subject in a very specific way in pretty much all of his work, where he was working with these um, hybrid hybrid organisms and sort of playing with this idea of technology and media being ingested physically by the body, in fact. Um, so he was, of course, very much ahead of the curve but you know 20 years later today we are actually beginning to experience that sort of very basic ontological shift on on the level of you know our our very physicality right So Um,
2: when you're talking about ingestion, we're talking about maybe a future, a near future in which maybe you ingest a little pod full of nanobots that are going to go repair your aortic valve or uh, unkink your colon or or something like that. Is is that what we're talking about? Or or uh, ingest nanobots that are actually going to transform some part of your body in a somewhat more future-seeking way?
1: Absolutely. Nanotechnology is sort of on a rise right now. And um, already we can deliver very targeted pods, if you will, made out of uh, single molecule carbon sheets that can actually target specific uh, cells in the body. So you know, there's a practical application of this to things such as cancer treatment, but also, I'm sure this is going to uh, evolve into something that we use for entertainment in one way or another. <laughs> we seem to always uh, find a way. <laughs> to entertain ourselves with
2: our technology. Right. And, and obviously, uh, as something ingestible that you could pair up with virtual reality right away. Um, first of all, there's somebody doing that right now, like right now mm-hmm. listening to the show. There's somebody who ingested something and then put on virtual reality goggles. But mm-hmm. but let's set that aside for a moment <laughs> and think about I mean, it seems an, another thing about this. So we're going to talk about ontology, and you talked about Cronenberg, but it seems to me the other movie we need to talk about are The, the Matrix, right? The Matrix. Mm-hmm. In The Matrix, that transition that you're talking about from purely biological to digital, virtual, technological is kind of symbolized by these, you know, womb-like pods people are sleeping in.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the the horror in, in that vision comes from the sort of vampiristic setup, right, where the technology is actually feeding off of us. And th- so this is the the worst post-humanist nightmare mm-hmm. that we could imagine <laughs> you know post-humanism is of of course very controversial and but but there is sort of a lot of people that are very invested in that vision of the world sort of downloading yourself into a physical object such as a computer but this cross between biology and and physic, well physics in a sense of chips and it, it's, it's it's a it's a very troubled very troubled cross uh, over That usually implies some sort of an unfair deal that we have to make with our technology. So maybe that's a cautionary tale. We all hope that this is going to pan out in a little bit more peaceful way, but they definitely had a very clear vision of what that world would look like.
2: So, uh, in speaking of visions of what the world looks like, I mean, we could start this conversation with them, we could start it with Steve Jobs, we could start it a lot of places, but in some ways that seems a little late in the game. I mean, you could argue, one could argue, that our vision of modernism has always been this kind of sleek, rounded, less ornamented thing. I mean, Bauhaus, whatever it's reacting to, it's reacting to the Russian Revolution and a bunch of other stuff. But that aesthetic is a kind of pod-like aesthetic, right? You're going to take all the sharp edges and stuff off of things and and take the ornamentation off. And and so maybe our idea of modernism is something sleek and undifferentiated.
1: Well, it's interesting that you say that because modernism is a very much a trope, well, or ontology of the past two centuries at least. And today we live in this liminal space that is called postmodernism. Mm-hmm. So we, we refer to modernism only in terms of the fact that it's post-that time uh, because we cannot come up with anything better than that and <laughs> in fact very often I argue that we actually live in a post post-modernism at this point and we are still struggling to to sort of coin the term that, you know maybe in in retrospective we'll be able to do so however modernism and its sleekness you know it's, it's interesting that you mention um, Bauhaus because that School of Design was born in a very particular socioeconomic situation in Europe, between the two world wars. And there was a certain need to address very similar problems that we are addressing these days, which is uh, limited resources, limited space, overcrowding, overpopulation, and so so the, the lack of ornamentation and the, the sort of focus on the idea that uh, form follows function comes out of just a necessity to preserve resources, really. And one of the main architects and designers uh, that was associated with the Bauhaus, um, Le Corbusier, his uh, vision of architecture and design had to do with understanding, for example, the house as a machine for living. So, house is not a place necessarily where you retreat, uh, but it's a place where you replenish, you rest, but you rest in a in a very sort of efficient way. And that sort of, I believe, leads us to this um, underst- to this um, even ability to. Think of pods or think of these sort of abbreviated spaces, you know, having that sort of history in the background. And and
2: that's going to transition nicely, too, I think, uh, into Mm -hmm. the second segment when we really start talking about these pod share hotels and Mm -hmm. stuff, which is sort of Bauhaus on steroids in some way. But I just want to come back to, you know, there's a way in which I think product design is... Yeah, it's, there's a form-following function and there's a way in which product design kind of expresses uh, a, a worldview in a given moment or a zeitgeist in a, in, a different, in a given moment. But there's also a way in which we sort of deceive ourselves a little bit with it, right? I mean, so yes, as we first started to think about um, reduction of resources, pollution, damage to the planet, overpopulation, one of the ways that we did that was by creating commercial spaces where, you know, you get... You'd go to a health food store and you'd have a scoop and you'd get a whole bunch of legumes and you'd put them in a bag and you and they weren't all packaged up. And there was at least kind of this idea. It may have been who knows how those legumes really got there, but there was this idea anyway that we were stepping away from some of the things that were hurting us. And, and I suppose, you know, as we have Keurig pods and Tide pods and whiskey pods and hydration pods and all, all these things, there's there's maybe a sense that they also are a response to limited resources. But I don't know, if you think about that very much, it just seems like you're using a lot of, you know, artificial ingredients. And I, I mean, who really knows whether we are truly responding or just psychologically reassuring ourselves that we're responding?
1: So, so you're saying that maybe this is more of an aesthetic response yes. than actually um, resource-based response. Yes, You know, yeah, that's interesting. I think I think it may be both. I think we live in much more complicated times today, where you know, back in the day when Le Corbusier was designing, there was no such thing as advertising or you know, there's the sort of consumerism, the way that we actually have it today, and so so that sort of gesture, the the original gesture, might have been much more pure. Uh, today, of course, our culture is much more complex. Mm-hmm. And it's it's difficult to sort of tease this out. But you're, you're correct. I, I think it may be a combination of, of things that, you know, uh, make us like pods. I mean, you know, we also live in this sort of like collective, collective imagination, collective dream, you know we want we want our uh, future to be slick and we want our future to be efficient we are infatuated with our machines for a reason they enable us to be slick and fast and better and uh, more daring and you know so 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 this infatuation with with technology yes it's both aesthetic and well and, and practically driven as well
2: Right. And it seems as though, um, I want to just explore one more thing and then we'll take a break and we'll get into some of the practical expressions of all of this. But, you know, there, there's, a, I think, a way in which we're being asked to make another psychological adjustment. And that might be a, towards a certain kind of sleekness and self-contained set of delivery systems. I mean, just take a Keurig pot as an example. All right. So I happen to like coffee a lot. But, you know, at home, I want to grind, get certain Beans and grind them up, and I've got a Breville thing where I can, you know, make it just the way I want it. And it's it, it's all about smell and texture and and taste, obviously, you know. And a curing pot is sort of the opposite of that. Is it's a delivery system that's very efficient, and it's always kind of everyone is identical to the other, and and all of that kind of stuff. And I wonder if that's part of a psychological adjustment that we're being asked, in some large sense, to start making a way from the, the uh, very esoteric and personal experience of our senses and more towards this highly technologically produced environment. Mm.
1: Yeah, you know it's it's interesting because in all of this it's also easy to just forget your body you know mm-hmm. so having these very like rich experiences rich sensual experiences in the world I think it's still crucial yes. this is why I can't quite get on board with the post humanist uh, movement you know I, I don't want to be downloaded into the Internet <laughs> <laughs> and live there forever that sounds like my idea of hell <laughs> You know, I, I think in, in all of this sort of surface craze that we are in right now, especially in L.A., you know, like, of course, there's a the car culture here that has been here forever. And, you know, that that comes across in these sort of very slick finishes on the cars. And it seems like our personal technology is sort of mimicking that as well. But that sort of cuts us off from all that um Messy bits of technology because technology is also really messy. Mm. You know, the, we're trying to get rid of all of the cords and all of the uh, circuits, but there are certain things that will never go away. I mean, we can sort of make it as as small as as atoms, right? However, it is still messy and entangled, and uh, we sort of seem to gloss over that and would like to gloss over that and uh, would like to not see that, which is sort of an interesting psychological reaction, which sometimes I argue is reminiscent of shock. you know Maybe mm-hmm. perhaps we've been we are being shocked by our technology, by you know the the power and the speed, and all the things that are so seductive are also shocking to us. Right. Enter freud
2: <laughs> Right. And yes, inter-Freud and inter- and yes, all these experiences become more pod-like. Uh, we'll go from the very sleek uh, pod, pod-looking pod car to the self-driving car, which will be even more of a pod that just we sit in and it takes us from place to place. So we're going to take a break. Uh, Blanka Domingoska and I, we want to learn more about all this from people who are actually having some uh, pod experiences or some pod enterprises. So we're going to go on a little pod journey after this.
0: I got them Tide Pods, and I think I love the taste. Don't it feel great when you can? I feel your face, no sipping on Capri Sun. Them Tide Pods upon my plate. Somebody
1: call 911. I think I see in the face.
2: All right. So uh, we're still talking about pods, uh, and still with us, uh, Blanca Domagalska, uh, lecturer at Otis College of Art and Design, teaching courses on product design, art history, media and cultural theory, philosophy, aesthetic liminality. That is that sort of sense of being on a threshold between one state and another, maybe going from biological to more technological. Uh, and we're going to go on a couple of little pod related journeys, uh, Blanca and I. We're going to start with Elvina Beck, co founder and CEO uh, of Pod. Share, a membership-based co-living community designed to allow low-cost pod living in major cities. So, uh, Elvina Beck, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. And so tell us a little bit more about this. This, this uh, I mean, I'm familiar, for example, in Japan, they have the so-called capsule hotels, you know, uh, which basically are a, a place to sleep for a short period of time. Um, is, is PodShare similar to that or, or different?
0: Yeah, you share pods across a network of expensive neighborhoods, frankly, uh, in the city of Los Angeles and we have San Diego and San Francisco. The concept is just sharing and all included. There's food in the fridge. There's toiletries in the bathrooms. And there, at a pod share, you can kind of transfer your housing from different you know, city or neighborhood.
2: So basically, this is partly a response to to rising real estate prices, gentrification, people being priced out of their living environments. The Bay Area uh, is is certainly you know the the fault line for all of that. But yes, I am sure this is also going to work in in certain New York neighborhoods and downtown LA and in uh, places like that. But but in order to do that. Elvina, that requires the psychological adjustment, and I'm probably too old to make the psychological adjustment. In other words, I have to decide that I'm this kind of transferable organism who's not defined by the place I live in, the place I go home to every night, the place I wake up in every morning, that I exist in some other way, right?
0: Yes. And that's the whole idea, right, It's housing in the clouds, because you're probably of the mind that you know, you have a white picket fence potentially you've grown up on, and um, there's something that's shifting, I think, in the future generations where we're not committing to nine-to-fives or marriages or cars, uh, sales. We prefer uh, booking travel on our phones and everything around that. And so the whole idea is access, not ownership.
2: So let's go to Blanca on this. Uh, and uh, boy, talk about liminality. Blanca mm-hmm. Domagowska it seems like there's some kind of threshold being crossed here what do you hear in what Elvina says
1: well uh, I mean this is the perfect example of the ontological shift right it's a it's a shift in value system it's a shift in identity right what defines me as a person is apparently not all of the sort of consumeristic objects that uh, previous generations would accumulate it is actually about connectivity
2: Right, and, um, and, and, and a lot of who I am I can make, is sort of wearable. In other words, the more the technology is wearable, the more of my possessions I sort of take with me as I go from one pod to another.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's the, uh, the minimalist mentality, to what Blanca's point is.
2: Yeah, go ahead, Blanca. What were you going to say?
1: Well, that's the beauty of, you know, that's that's the positive side of our technology, and I'm glad that there is developments that sort of address the, the positive Outcome of you know what we have created, and that is that you know our whole world eventually can be just sort of living in our body, in our immediate uh, intimate space, you know, around our body, and so now it's just a sort of a um, we are still living in this dichotomy between the need for privacy and the need for connection, and so it's interesting because Alvina is sort of addressing a very specific target group of people that do move a lot thanks to the ability to connect and to exchange ideas and to try new things. And, you know, yet we still have other generations that are still here with us, (laughs) you know, living behind the picket fences Mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, participating in that particular ontology. So we are truly on a threshold right now between the two. Yeah. To
0: add to that, transportation is more affordable than ever. So you don't really have to own everything or really make a long trip like our parents used to. You know, on the whim, once again, you can have access to get to different places. The only thing that hasn't really been disrupted is the housing. So should you live, let's say, in Connecticut, but you wanted to come see Los Angeles, well, you'd have to pay two rents, your Connecticut home, which is essentially a storage unit, and the place that you're physically in in Los Angeles. But if you were nimble enough, you know, with your life, that you could transfer your housing from Connecticut to Los Angeles, and you would only pay one fixed rate, and in theory, you would have much more money to spend on the latte for $5, the sushi, and experiences.
2: Right. So um, I'm never giving up my latte machine. Uh, so it's, it's going to have to come with me somehow. But uh, Elvina, uh, these, the people who are who are being drawn to your service are even starting to think about themselves a little bit differently. They call themselves podestrians. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and apparently, is it true that some people are have, some of them are having the company logo tattooed on themselves?
0: that's right 17 people throughout the seven year history of podshare have fallen in love with this idea of wanderlust and home is where the heart is not literally like an address that they've decided that this icon which is like a suitcase and a share the road uh bi- the bicyclist share the road sign on as a roof has become like a symbol for them and so they've tattooed it on their bodies
2: we, we should say, actually, and I know this is something that you can't say very much about, but a certain hotel chain became upset with what you were doing, tried to sue you about the name, and, and you won because POD was had really kind of it made a transition. It made its own liminal transition from being a very specific brandable word to what? Something that's much more part uh, of the common apparently. parlance? Absolutely.
0: So apparently when they had trademarks, um, their name with the word pod in it, it was very specific uh, to lodging at that time. But come 2012 to, uh, to 20 to now, the word pod has become much more um, generic of a word and should and, and is usable by other people. And so we did, uh, we went uh, with the USPTO to prove um, the word generic, the word pod is generic and can be used or shared by everybody.
2: Um, We should, you know, Blanco was talking before about uh, the increasing scarcity of resources, uh, the burdens of overpopulation, uh, the kind of uh, footprint that human beings have made on the world. The thing that you're talking about, if it became a widespread phenomenon, is an interesting response to this. If I don't need, you know, 3,000 square feet of living space, if all I need is a space to be in at a given time before I go to to another space, uh, it begins to address some pretty fundamental questions about housing and resources.
0: Exactly. And you're talking about densification, which is exactly what Tokyo uh, and, and Hong Kong and all of these cities with overpopulation have to do. They go vertically, right? We have the luxury uh, in the States to, to go horizontally. But frankly, with, with you know, overpopulation, that'll be the case. Another point, globalization and bringing the world kind of closer together is all the diversity that you get with, you know, urbanization or, you know, densification. And so at would for example, we have all different ages, uh, creeds and thoughts all under one roof because of the affordability factor so should you have a lot of money you can get that white picket fence with a bunch of acres but if you didn't you would be stuffing at eight um an eight family member um you know person into one small ap- apartment you know because obviously that goes with your socioeconomic status so the whole idea is people cannot afford the big spaces to themselves or maybe they don't want to anymore because loneliness is another question mark which is the irony of technology where you can facetime anyone across the world but yet you know, studies show that we're lonelier than ever, maybe a housing network is a cure for that.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, this is all starting to make a, a lot of sense. And so if you're intrigued by this, if you want to learn more about this, if you want to shed uh, your your physical belongings and reality, and uh, at least in terms of the, the space that you own and spend a lot of time ma- maintaining, look into Podshare. Podshare yeah. uh, is Elvina Beck's company. She's the CEO. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. And before we transition uh, to our second guest of this, segment, uh, Kotaro Aoki, um, Blanca, it does seem like, yeah, that's an ontological shift, right? You decide to stop being a certain kind of human. The kind, I mean, so many of us are really defined by the place we live, our zip code, uh, our, our school system that we send our kids to, the street we live on, the resale value of our house. All of that goes out the window and we, we actually do become a slightly different organism.
1: Uh, yes, much much more sort of permeable organism at that too, right? Like our um, the picket fence. It's it's funny because you know you you usually think of this like small, cute, uh, white picket fence, but that also can stand for a, a, just a wall that people put up between thems- themselves and the other. And um, you know the other uh, stands as the trope of horror, of course. You know this is what we're trying to fend ourselves against. Mm-hmm. But in a world of connectivity, there is no other. The other is part of your own flow. There just, there's just flows, right, of, of energy and of uh, information. And so, so that particular sort of uh, positive uh, view of the world is, is, is taking shape. It's actually taking shape right now.
2: All right. So that uh, transitions us very nicely to our next guest, Kotaro Aoki, former philosophy major at Wesleyan University, self-professed pod napper. This is a thing. This is a thing that was happening on the Wesleyan campus while he was there. These sleeping pods, right? They have, and, and describe what they look like.
4: Um, so they appear to be lounge chairs um, enclosed by, like, some white spheres of uh, plastic, and they look pretty uh, sleek and futuristic-looking, like, machines, basically.
2: Right. So we're, we're back to what Blanca and I were talking about before, about Bauhaus and the kind of sleek ideas of early right. 20th century modernism. And, and so – and typically, like, how, how would you use these podnapping, you know, units?
4: Well, it's, it's actually uh, pretty simple. Yeah, you go in there and you shut the door and yeah, you lie down on the reclined seat and um, you set a timer about 20 minutes or so. And first, it produces like soothing sounds and rhythms, like acting as a relaxing white noise. And after 20 minutes or so, it. Kind of gently uh, nudges you uh, by slight vibrations and ambient lightning.
2: So, uh, you know, many many decades ago, shortly after the end of the American Civil War, I was in college, and I was it was not uncommon to walk through the library, particularly during exam time or end of term time, and there would be people asleep there with their jaws agape, you know, <laughs> lying on various modular library furniture, and and just you know, they just would have fallen asleep because they were exhausted there's a way in which this thing that you're talking about the picture that i've seen your legs kind of stick out but you're the rest of your body's sort of in there so is part of the idea that you don't have people looking at you while you're exhausted and taking this power nap
4: yeah basically
2: and, and is that because there's some kind of shamefulness attached to falling asleep
4: well that was there before differently right mm-hmm. like um Especially like nowadays, or college life, or young adult life, or any you know age, like our life is like so purpose driven, and like every activity we do has some sort of meaning. And sleep is usually like what we have to sacrifice to do all those like meaningful, purposeful activities. But we do need sleep, and this like sleeping part sort of gives a justification, yeah, for us to sleep, yeah, without feeling guilty, you know, about like not doing something purposeful, something meaningful. Yeah. So definitely feeling of guilt or shame is concealed there. But yeah.
2: So uh, let me just uh, switch things over to Blanka Domogalska. You know, uh, what I'm hearing here also is a kind of, there's almost sort of a Russian nesting doll quality to this. Uh, If I need to go to sleep, uh, I might ingest a capsule. And increasingly, by the way, capsules that have ibuprofen or something to make you sleep and stuff like that, an awful lot of them are now those kind of gel capsules that are a little bit more pod-like. They they seem like a pod that's going to dissolve and let liquid stuff go into your throat. So I could take one of those pods, Blanca, uh, mm-hmm. or I could let a pod take me. I mean, what uh, he's talking about is letting the yourself go inside the pod.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because. Well, taking pills like taking sleeping pills or any sort of um, aid to that effect is uh, completely socially acceptable in our culture. However, sleeping in public places is absolutely not. And uh, it's it's interesting because um, apparently Leonardo da Vinci swore by taking naps, and well, he would take extended naps, uh, sleep four hours, and work four hours. And apparently that was the most sort of optimal way to power through all of the inventions and sort of work that he had on his schedule. So there is something to it. You know, uh, I know that my students actually dedicate a lot of time to think about those issues as well especially around finals time and to such an extent that I I do have students designing pods of that sort with different (laughs) sort of accommodations inside right so now it's just sort of furnishing those pods with specific types of lighting and uh, sound and (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know whatever else could happen there you know including, including smell and so on so th- there's it's you know it's definitely it's a design a solution that uh, addresses you know a very particular need in our society right now also i think that we are sort of uh, living this hangover from the 80s you know where <laughs> everything sort of picked up it seems and um people were expected to work long hours and that sort of permeated through the 90s and the 2000s and You know, only now we are beginning to talk about the fact that rest is actually one of the key features of productivity. We have to rest to be productive. So it's interesting that that that's shaping up. You know, right. in, in schools right now.
2: All right. So uh, we're going to end this segment here. Although, uh, thank you so much, Kotara Aoki. Blanca Domagalska. I would have been lost without you. You are my Virgil, getting me through the underworld of pods, a lecturer at Otis College, uh, Art and Design, teaching courses on product design with expertise in art history, media, cultural theory, philosophy, and aesthetic liminality. I've actually thought for a long time about uh, doing an, a whole <laughs> show about liminality. So maybe, uh, maybe we'll speak again. Wonderful. I would love that. All right. We'll take a break right now, and we're going to do one last segment here. We couldn't do a show about pods without talking about pod people.
1: are land
2: You know, when Blanca Domogoska talks about ingestibles, I realize, like, eventually politicians will be in pods, and you'll just ingest them, right? Like, eight years from now, Andrew Yang will run for president again, and you'll just take something, you'll put it in your mouth, it'll dissolve, and you'll, you won't you will have to watch any debates or, or campaign commercials. You'll know all 108 positions that he has on things, uh, and you'll totally understand who he is. All right, today's show was produced by Josh Nilea, really, <laughs> absolutely the only person I could have thought of asking to do such a show. Kyle Wolf is on the board making it all sound great. I have no idea exactly when this show is running, so I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Our final segment has to do with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the film that gave us the term pod people. So before I introduce our guest, let's hear a little bit from the 1978 Philip Kaufman-directed remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I think you're going to hear Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, Brooke Adams, Veronica Cartwright. The pod people are coming.
3: They're growing out of these
0: pods.
2: I'll get the police.
0: Elizabeth, wake up. They get you when you sleep. Elizabeth, would you wake up?
4: Hello, police. Officer,
1: I would like to report four bodies in my backyard.
2: You all right? Wait right there, Mr. Pennell. How do you know my name? Hang up, Matthew. I didn't tell you my name. Hang up.
0: You're all a part of it. They're all
1: pods, all of them.
2: All right, so uh, we got to talk about this, obviously. And joining us to do so is Jim Knipfel. Am I saying that right? Uh, Yes, you are. Thank you very much. All right. Novelist and author of a series of critically acclaimed memoirs, including Slackjaw, Quitting the Nairobi Trio and Ruining It for Everybody. He also authored the long-running Slackjaw column, which appeared in several publications, and wrote a piece uh, for Den of Geek on the legacy of the invasion of the body snatchers. So, um, well, maybe, Jim, first of all, I mean, there might be a a person or two who hasn't seen or doesn't remember the movie. Should uh, we maybe remind them what actually happens? Isn't it?
3: Well, what actually happens is uh, uh, it's a story told by a small town doctor who begins to witness what at first he believes to be a, a case of mass hysteria. People who believe that their loved ones, family members, are not really their loved ones or family members anymore. They can't put their finger on what's different, there's just something missing, some little spark of uh, uh, emotion or empathy or humor. But over time, our protagonist um, begins to realize that this is not a case of mass hysteria. And he begins to grow increasingly paranoid himself and more alienated himself as he comes to understand that these alien pods uh, which have landed in a small town in Northern California um by nature, grow into uh, grow to, to perfectly mimic human beings and uh, uh, replace them. Um, and uh, the question is, how do you stop this from happening if you can stop this from happening? without giving too much away.
2: Right. So, I mean, a lot of the, uh, it seems to me, I've always believed that all horror is about existing societal anxieties, and it's kind of hard to pin down exactly where this one, you know, is located, partly because there have been a couple of different versions of it that took place at different times. But, I mean, yeah, go ahead.
3: Uh, I was going to say that's 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 actually the magic of it because the the core question is is uh, you know what makes us human and what is it that makes humans special? It's it's such a fundamental question, a question as old as philosophy, that it is open to interpretation and reinterpretation with uh, with every passing generation. So you know, in the 50s, the general response was, well, this was a reflection of Cold War paranoia, our fear of insidious communist infiltration in America. But at the same time, it was, it could also be interpreted in the wake of the McCarthy era of a, of a fear of uh, creeping tyranny. I mean, we had just come through this period where people were um, asked to you know, put the finger on friends and loved ones, co-workers, neighbors, as potential communists, because they thought or acted a little differently than we did. But it could also be seen, uh, again, at that time, as a comment on increasing conformity and suburbanization in the Eisenhower era, or more broadly uh, as a uh, comment on uh, increasing dehumanization with uh, increasing technological developments. And um, uh, with every different era, uh, depending on what the uh, social political landscape is like, you can look at that in a different way. You know, today you can, uh, you know, what is a pod person? Well, you can point at um, any number of, uh, say, true believers, you know, Trump supporters or QAnon followers or on the flip side, say, environmental activists or people who are devoted to, to, a, to a single idea. But at the same time, you can also look at, uh, go out on the street and look at people staring at their phones, you know, that these people have completely disconnected from the world around them. You know, they've, you know we've become increasingly alienated from one another by various technological means.
2: You know, to me also, I, I start thinking about this, and I start thinking about particularly, uh, I think, the one that I remember better is the 78 r- remake. Sure, and, I, and, I, I, and I also think about a lot of the history of psychopharmacology, too, and sort of what's uh-huh. going on there. So, Because, I mean, affect is such a key to this whole movie. That that being doesn't have the same affect as I do. There's something a little bit wrong here. Um, I'm not talking to somebody who's really like me. And uh-huh. that, that can be lots of different things, right? It can be people from different real. Different religions, different political ideologies, uh, different levels of attainment. There's a lot of ways w- in which somebody can seem different. But there's something very, uh, and I was sort of thinking like, e- even if you go back to the 1965 one, I mean, tricyclics were already being introduced as antidepressants. Uh, I'm sure by 78, we probably have diazepam type things. I don't know what time the movie starting over came out, but there's that great scene in Bloomingdale's where Burt Reynolds is having the panic attack and Charles Durning says, does anybody have a Valium? And it turns out everybody Everybody does. Everybody. So, <laughs> yes. you know, I'm just wondering about that, too, that one of the things that's beginning to happen is that we have, as, as medical consumers, the ability to alter our states of mind in, sure. in a commercially marketable way. And so the person you're talking to might be on something.
3: Oh, absolutely. Most of the people you talk to are probably on something. You know, we have <laughs> these, uh, these mood stabilizers You know, that just deaden us a little bit. So, because, you know, it's terrifying to think of what we would be like if we, you know, really did give our emotions full reign the way, the way we would like. You know, it's an interesting thing that it's a kind of a tacit argument that's, that's made in, throughout the various film versions. Uh, it doesn't appear in the original novel, but it's in all the film versions that there's a scene where our, our main character, is confronted by uh, someone he used to know and used to trust who is now a pod person. And the pod person argues essentially that the pod way of life is better because uh, you know, humanity on this planet has really kind of made a hash of things as a result of fear and uh, emotion and opinions. You know, because of those things we end up in endless wars, vast economic and the poisoned food supplies and the uh, environmental collapse. But if you got rid of all those things, you know, if we all really started thinking the same way, if we, you know, just deadened our emotions and all finally started, you know, had a single mind, then maybe we could finally accomplish something.
2: Right, so if, if the pod. People's argument was easily dismissible. They'd be less dangerous. But, but, yeah, it, but in a way, they, they actually are marketing uh, their own utopian, slightly Borg like assimilator be destroyed uh, argument for a way to hyper function as a hive
3: exactly and as it's it's funny that as you know this argument is presented in each subsequent version the most recent one i'm thinking of came out in 2007 by the time you get to 1950 1956 you know this was seen as a terrifying idea you know the, the because the idea of american individuality was so inbred in all of us but by 2007 it's the argument is presented in such a way as to say you know maybe they're onto something.
2: Right. Yeah, maybe, well, I maybe mean, it's
3: not such a bad idea after all.
2: I mean, when you think about it, the Borg on Star Trek—they do fly around in a cube that's full of pods, you know. Uh-huh. So, and, and they're doing okay. Um, uh-huh. All right. Well, listen, fascinating stuff. The movie, of course, is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, our guest uh, is somebody who's given uh, an awful lot of thought uh, to it, uh, and way too much thought. Perhaps <laughs> way too much thought. I didn't want to be the person who said that. Jim thank uh, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thanks so much for having me.
2: And thanks again to Josh. Nilea for uh, making this crazy idea that flashed through my brain for like 15 seconds actually into a real show